0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2019. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In 2009, one of the most bizarre crimes of the 21st century was committed by a 20-year-old American flautist and world-class salmon fly tyer named Edmund Rist. In an event with global historical and scientific ramifications, Rist, then a student at London's Royal Academy of Music, stole hundreds of invaluable exotic bird skins from England's Natural History Museum at Tring, home of one of the largest ornithological collections in the world. And uh, a book I think some of us are familiar with by now, it's now out in paper books, called The Feather Thief, Beauty, Obsession, and the Natural History Heist of the Century. It's a bestseller and uh, it's won uh, several awards. The author is Kirk Wallace Johnson who is founder of the List Project, Resettle Iraqi Allies. He's author previously of To Be a Friend is Fatal, The Fight to Save Iraqis uh, America Left Behind. Uh, Kirk Wallace-Johnson served in Iraq with the U.S. Agency for International Development in Baghdad, then Fallujah as the agency's first coordinator for reconstruction in that war-torn city. And uh, he is senior fellow at the USC Annenberg Center on Communication Leadership and Policy and lives in uh, Los Angeles with his wife and son. Kirk Wallace-Johnson on a tour now for uh, The Feather Thief, and uh, we appreciate you taking some time for us.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: I want to start with... um, Go back just a little bit, and then we get, of course, quickly into uh, The Feather Thief. But... um, uh, tell us how the list project uh, came about. for important work.
1: Well, um, as you mentioned, I was uh, I was in Iraq during the war. I was opposed to the war, but I I felt an ethical obligation to to try to help with the reconstruction of the country. And I speak Arabic. Uh, that was I, I studied Middle Eastern history in, in college and. Um, And as a result, I became close friends with a lot of the Iraqis who were risking their lives to help the Americans uh, every day. So these were interpreters, they were doctors, lawyers. Uh, We completely depended on these people, even for bringing us our food in some cases. And after I got back to the United States, um, I realized that a number of my Iraqi colleagues had been assassinated because they'd worked alongside me and alongside the U.S. government and armed forces, and that our government wasn't doing anything to help those who were now running for their lives. And um, I didn't know how in the world to help a refugee. I had never done anything like that before. I was just angry about what I saw as an abandonment of of these people. Um, And so I started, I mean, the first piece I ever wrote was an op-ed, calling on our government to help these people. And within a day or so of that op-ed running, I had hundreds and then thousands and then, you know, in the tens of thousands of emails from Iraqis who I guess saw someone who was trying to help them out and started sending me their own desperate pleas for help. And so, I mean, I really did not have a plan. I didn't know what I was doing. I just started putting their names into an Excel sheet. And that Excel sheet then basically took over the next eight or nine years of my life. as The list kept growing, and so I built an organization to help the people on that list get out. I testified in, in Congress and fought the White House over several administrations and, and fought to get, uh, I mean, the organization. We got thousands of these people out. Um, and the the bills that I fought for opened up about another 15,000 visas for these people. But for every one that we got out, there were about 50 that were abandoned. So, um, you know, I'm still to this day, you know, faced with that. That I think a lot of people get, uh, you know, they're glad to hear that that organization existed and that we got some people out. But for me, what, what I'm left with is a feeling that I I just didn't, I didn't achieve as much as I had hoped.
0: I was uh, reading on your website by the way kirkwjohnson.com. Uh, you ended up uh with with PTSD, right? And and <laughs> I I just I can't even process this. You in in the middle of that you sleepwalked uh, out a second floor window onto concrete, so a year recovering from that.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm the um I'm the guy that survived Fallujah and nearly died while he was on vacation from Fallujah. Um, uh, the, the concept of irony is kind of dead to me. But, um, no, I had what's called uh, a dissociative fugue state. Um, I didn't think I had PTSD. I felt fine, but um, um, this tends to happen to, to folks who are leaving the war zone. I mean, we don't PTSD doesn't really hit until you're out of harm's way. And in my case, I just... Um, I mean, they characterize it as highly functional sleepwalking, and and, uh, I was at a family reunion at a hotel in the Dominican Republic, and um, in the middle of the night, I sleepwalked out of my window, um, fell to concrete, broke both of my wrists, my jaw, my nose. I cracked my skull in a couple places and had something like a hundred stitches in my face. And, yeah, as you said, I, I spent the better part of the subsequent year, um, you know, getting all, all manner of surgeries done to kind of screw me back into place. And over that year, I really felt like I had just completely failed. I was planning on going back to Iraq. Uh, all my stuff was still there. I was in charge of a bunch of projects. And from my hospital room, I watched it all as all these projects just unraveled in my absence. They couldn't find anyone to replace me, and, and so I just felt like the entire effort had been a complete failure. And so when when one of my Iraqi friends wrote to me asking for help, I didn't think I could help him, but I, I thought, well, if I just try, if I maybe got one person out, maybe I would have just a little victory to, to hold on to and that the whole thing won't have been a waste. Um, and, not, I mean, little did I know that that would sort of redirect my life for the next decade
0: before we transition to the feather thief and there is a bit of a a link here a bit of a transition um the list project still up and running looking for help still with that
1: um the list project exists in name i still uh help out on a number of cases but we're not accepting money anymore and um uh, i mean i reached a point where um i had to kind of Start moving on with with my life, but also there's a number of really wonderful newer organizations that have stepped up that are, um, you know, we're referring cases to. Um, but I, I still am. I mean, I'm. I'll be testifying on behalf of an asylum case in uh, next month, actually. Um, but uh, but I really had to kind of take deliberate steps to start putting some distance between the war and myself. Um, I felt that I had contributed something like a third of my life at that point into trying to f- confront the humanitarian consequences and not feeling like I had done particularly well at, at that. Um, and so in in some ways uh, I mean this 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 book is a direct result of all of that. It's a, in some ways it's kind of a an admitted escape from all of it.
0: Yeah, so let's let's make a transition. Um there is a connection. You were you're looking for, I guess you you need some relief, a lot of stress. And you you pick up uh fly fishing?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I'm from the Midwest, so we were we were raised to to look at at fly fishermen as just sort of incorrigible snobs and and elitists and all of that. And so I never I never Fly fish when I was when I was little, and then when I was about twenty seven, I I tried it for the first time and just instantly fell in love with it. I was living in New England at the time, and I any time I had a, f- a free day, even a free half day, I would throw all of my gear into the trunk and, and shoot up into New Hampshire or, or Vermont or Maine. And I, if I could, I would spend you know eight or nine hours wading up a river. But in my mind, it would feel like I was, you know, only 30 minutes had passed, and I would get out of the river just feeling completely re-energized and and, uh, as though everything had kind of slowed down again. And it was on one of these fishing trips. I was in northern New Mexico in the Sangre de Cristo Mountain Range, north of Taos there. And... I was supposed to be working on my first book, but I was also still dealing with uh, the List Project and the war. We were withdrawing from Iraq at that point, point. and I just decided I was going to go get myself into a river. And so I Googled uh, in search of a fly fishing guide, and several hours into our, our morning, uh, this guide opened up his fly box, and I caught this glint of some, something kind of remarkable. It was kind of cherry red, canary yellow, emerald green. It was this really kind of spectral pattern of feathers tied around a very large hook. And I'd never seen anything like that before. I mean, when you fish for trout, you cast these kind of buggy-looking flies. They're things that are insect colored their their drab dun, olive gray black colored flies that are meant to resemble real insects but this was like unlike any insect I'd ever seen and what he had in that fly box was a Victorian salmon fly and this this is a very unique uh, art form for lack of a better word that emerged in the 19th century in that um, that in, in which a, a salmon fly uh, has to be tied according to very exacting uh, rules and recipes that call for something like a dozen different species of brightly colored and exotic birds. Um, they don't help you catch salmon any better. <laughs> um, salmon are Essentially colorblind when they're spawning and they're also not feeding when they're spawning. They're striking at things out of aggression to protect the eggs that they've just laid. So there's no real, um, you know, biological basis for any of this. Um, it's just, uh, a kind of status pursuit where, where men tied these fancy looking things to, to show off and, and to, to show off their worldliness and, and also their deep pocketbook. And um and so even though this was a hundred and fifty year old art form, there is a community of these guys that exist today um who are still frankly obsessed with tying according to the rules of the old masters. And I didn't know any of this history until uh, I saw one of these flies in my in my guide's fly box and started peppering him with questions. And at some point he said to me, you know, if you if you're so into all of this, if you think this is strange, you should hear about this kid who broke into the British Museum of Natural History and stole hundreds of exotic bird skins to sell to fly-tires so that he could finance the, the 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 buying of a new golden flute. And as he as he was saying this this sentence, it just struck me as like one of the oddest uh, possible stories I'd ever heard it didn't even seem like it could be true um, and at first I, I proceeded thinking that it must just be kind of myth but as soon as I started investigating what happened that night now nearly ten years ago I, I got sucked into this story
0: and um, I you use the word obsession I believe this was uh, yeah, a, really. What, what, I might as well. I might as
1: well admit it. So this is, I got totally obsessed with
0: it. So uh, one thing you've talked about is, and we're not revealing anything that you don't reveal pretty early in the book. Um, this true story, uh, Edmund Edwin Wrist. This this young man who commits this crime. Uh, I think one thing that I don't know if outrage is the word, but um, he uh, he essentially got a slap on the wrist for this this incredible crime.
1: Yeah, so when when I first heard about it nearly eight years ago now, um he had just gone through the sentencing process and he he basically received a suspended sentence meaning no time behind bars. Um he was even given a degree from the Royal Academy of Music um and, and sent on his way. Um and and I think because the British Museum was so frankly, embarrassed by the brazenness of this heist. I mean, here a 20-year-old kid climbed a wall that ran behind a museum and bashed out one of its windows with a rock and stole upwards of a million dollars worth of bird specimens that had been sitting there for, in some cases, a couple hundred years. These birds had survived the First World War, the Second World War, um, uh, only to be stolen by a fly tire. Um, but I think that sense of embarrassment led the museum to basically close the case as quickly as they could and to not really pursue uh, the fact that even though Edwin was arrested 15 months after the heist, um, they were still missing something like half of the 299 birds that that he'd stolen. And, and so when I first heard about it and discovered the extent of, of the heist, uh, I also quickly realized that no one was looking for them and that if anyone was going to find them, I guess it was going to have to be me.
0: So that's the other part of this. You you wanted to, I guess, maybe you could help recover them.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> similarly, uh, you know, maybe the stakes were a little bit lower, but I didn't know what I was doing when I was trying to figure out how to get a refugee into the United States or how to launch a nonprofit. And I, I felt like in this case, um, you know, how hard could it be to track these guys down? Uh, I'll just figure it out. Um, uh, but I had never done an investigation like this before. I, I didn't even, I didn't have a book deal. I had never written any book before. Um, I just felt that there was something profoundly strange as to be, captivating to this story. And fortunately, I was able to give it the time that it deserved. And so um, I started out very tentatively and, you know, reading every every history book I could about the origin of these collections, and about the birds themselves and fly tying, and then doing my first interviews with some of these fly tires. But then starting to actually accumulate evidence that I used to, to flip one guy against another, to, to extract more evidence. And it took four years to get the Feather Thief himself to agree to an interview. Um, but, uh, I, that led me to fly to Germany and I had a single, you know, roughly eight hour session with him. Uh, and this story kept, Sort of metastasizing throughout the globe. I kept finding crazier and crazier leads that would take me all over the place in pursuit of these missing birds.
0: Let's take a brief break when we come back more with Kirk Wallace Johnson. The book is The Feather Thief Beauty Obsession and the Natural History Heist of the Century. It's a bestseller. It's won several awards. Now out in paperback. When we come back, Kirk Wallace Johnson, I want to talk about the stakes here. It's you know, it's not getting refugees out of Iraq, but it's and people might say, uh, well, this is you know, it's sad, but it's you know, it's birdskins. Um, there's there's a lot more going on. Um, we'll talk about that uh, following this brief break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you, and Cache Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic, practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial, plastic, and reconstructive surgery, and offering hearing aid services with audiologist Dr. Tejgan in Logan and Providence. Cash Valley ENT dot com. Every week, Undisciplined brings you conversations about fascinating new scientific research and the people who bring it to life. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum, and I'm excited to be taking the reins as the show's new host. You might recognize my voice from Utah Public Radio's newscasts or my Project Resilience special about people with disabilities. Join me every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on Utah Public Radio to learn about how researchers are working to make sense of the world around us.
1: Next time on LA Theater Works, one of the most classic horror stories of all time comes to life.
0: Welcome to my house, Mr. Harker. Count Dracula? I am
1: Dracula. Dracula. Next time on LA Theater Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Well, we'd love to support your events on our UPR community calendar. Head to upr.org, click on the community calendar tab, and there you can find the submission link. We highlight events including workshops, theater, art shows, dances, lectures, virtual events, and more. Again, you can just go to the community calendar tab on upr.org to submit your event.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2019. We're back with Kirk Wallace Johnson. He's author of The Feather Thief Beauty Obsession and the Natural History Heist of the Century. And uh, you're listening to Access Utah. Uh, so I teased this before the break, Kirk Wallace Johnson. Uh, the stakes here—I wonder if you'd talk a bit about this. It's it, you know, it's a, it's a big heist: 299 bird skins, exotic species, including uh, some collected by um, a, uh, you know the famous naturalist Alfred Russell Wallace. Uh, but to, but but to this question: Well, what's the big deal? I mean, it is a big deal. I wonder if you'd explain it.
1: Right. Well, and you know, when I started out, I didn't, I didn't know anything about natural history collections. I thought when you went into a natural history museum and saw, you know, the birds and display cases out in the public section, that that was the collection. Um, I didn't realize that, for example, the, the British Museum, um, they have, I think, the second largest ornithological collection on the face of the planet. That's seven hundred and fifty thousand bird skins, and these are full birds that are just uh, preserved in a way that they can be stored compactly in drawers and cabinets and things like that. They have something like two and a half miles of birds in jars of spirit um, on shelves. They have hundreds of thousands of eggs. And you might wonder, well, why on earth do they need, you know, a hundred quote-unquote, copies of this species or that species. And the reason is, to me, is kind of magical. Um, Wallace, who you mentioned, um, who gathered many of the birds of paradise that were stolen by the feather thief, uh, he described these specimens as the individual letters that make up the volumes of the the Earth's deep history, that these birds were, in effect, snapshots of of the Earth's past, and that they held answers to questions that scientists hadn't even thought of yet. And so, in some cases, I mean, some of these birds have been protected and preserved by the British Museum since before the word scientist was even coined, since before we had anything like, you know, uh, I mean, before they even had any kind of advanced microscopes, before they understood the concept of genetic inheritance much less DNA, and for generations scientists have approached this collection with new tools and with new questions. And so, for example, Wallace, in his study of the natural world and in part of these specimens, he independently arrived at a theory of evolution through natural selection um, at the same time as Darwin did. But, but beyond that sort of seismic un- uh, breakthrough, We know, for example, that mercury levels are rising in the ocean because we can pluck a feather from a seabird that was gathered from a particular island in 1820 and compare it to the same species of bird that was gathered from the same island in 1850 and compare it to one from 1910. And, And by having this repository or this sort of natural history archive, scientists can make all kinds of inferences about how the world is changing at a time that the, that the world is changing in, at breakneck speed. And so, um, you know, I, I initially, when I first started doing interviews with fly tires who were all obsessed with this stuff, they, they were pushing this theory that the museum was just sort of sitting on these leftover relics from the 19th century and that they were just gathering dust in museum basements, but nothing could be further from the truth. These things are vital to modern 21st century research um, and in stealing them. And in some cases, for example, the feather thief stole all 17 of the British Museum's flame bower birds. That may not sound like a large number, but there are only something like 30 flame bower birds in all of the museums and university collections on the face of the planet. So that's gone. You can't go back to 1850 and get another one of those birds. Um, and so in the courtroom, the, the head of the British Museum, the head of the museum uh, science at the museum, he described this as a catastrophic theft from humanity, that a, that a hole had been blown open in the record here. And so that's where this story changed gears for me. It went from just becoming kind of a quirky museum heist to something that um, seemed much more serious to me, that um, I was in the earliest stages, going into these private forums and private Facebook groups and seeing members of this community joking about the heist, posting photos of other natural history museums and saying, paging secret agent Edwin Rist, can you come take care of this museum too? Um, But more damningly, um, you know, after the arrest, uh, there were only 19 skins out of 299 birds that were returned by members of this community. And the rest are all, I mean, I won't give away everything in the book, but uh, many of the skins are still floating throughout this community. And the only thing I'd add to that is that in the course of researching this book and in the, in the, the period of time since it has come out, I'm now at six different museum heists throughout the world that have been carried out by Fly Tires we suspect um, because the species that are being targeted are the exact same ones that were stolen from the British museum. And so, uh, I mean, in, in one of these cases, the guy doing it, I know the identity and he hit three different museums in, in Europe posing as a pest control operator. And he would go in at night and spray for bugs and then take tens of thousands of dollars worth of rare birds inside his coveralls. So as, as, as kind of nutty a crime as this is, it's ongoing, um, and it's not likely to to slow down because these things are becoming even more valuable as time goes on.
0: Uh, I guess that's a service that your book is uh, providing, is, is helping us realize how valuable these collections are. are. Are natural history museums taking greater measures for security? Edwin Rist, I guess he was up against a security guard kind of a thing, or, you know, these are ongoing, or or, are are these uh, collections being protected with more hardened security?
1: Right. Uh, I mean, that's a a tricky one, because we have to remember that these museums are, for the most part, they are public trusts. I mean, they were created with the advancement of human knowledge in mind. And so they can't go into full-scale bunker mode and just have the, you know, say no to everybody, basically, in order to protect these specimens. There's always going to be some sliding scale of trust that they each museum is, is trying to calculate in the best possible way. I will say, um, you know, to anyone who... Uh, might be hearing about this story and feeling inspired to go break into a museum of their own. That uh, most natural history museums are putting locks on the birds that are mentioned in the Feather Thief, uh, as a result of the book coming out. Um, and I think that's that's wise. But um, but at the same time, you know, I've you know I've had some frustrating exchanges with the British Museum. But they they're not rolling in money. Many of these museums, it's free to walk in. Um and so they don't they they fully are dependent on on public funding, and that is almost across the board declining because people don't recognize just how important these things are and so While it's easy to kind of kick the British Museum for being not as well defended as we'd hope um, the solution isn't to just yell at them. the solution is that they have they have better funding from from in that case from from the parliament.
0: If you've just joined us, we're talking with Kirk Wallace Johnson. His book, The Feather Thief, Beauty Obsession, and the Natural History Heist of the Century, is now out in paperback. I wonder, uh, Kirk Wallace Johnson, if you tell us a little bit more about uh, Edwin Rist, a fascinating character. You, you, you finally got to spend, I think, about eight hours with him. Um, I, I guess starting with his motivation, what did he, what did he tell you? Was it straight-up money?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, well, first off, I found him to be, you know, remarkably intelligent and a very likable young man. I mean, he's he's only just turned 30, I think, now. Um, um, the motive is an interesting question. He, he didn't come at this out of nowhere. Edwin had been tying flies since he was 10 years old. He started with trout flies, and then when he was around 13 or 14, he discovered this world of brightly colored salmon flies and became obsessed with with learning to tie those particular flies. And by the age of 15, he was hailed by Fly Tire magazine uh, as the future of fly-tying, that he was just so good at this that the the older generation couldn't believe it. Um, And yet, as good as he was behind the vice, as they say, uh, the fly-tying vice, he was always constrained by a lack of access to the quote-unquote authentic feathers that are referenced in these 150-year-old recipes. And so he could tie these things really well using dyed, you know, chicken or pheasant or, or turkey feathers. But as he told me, the knowledge of the feather or the fly's falsity eats at you. That he he dreamt of tying according to the real thing. At the same time, he understood that these were immensely valuable because when they occasionally would pop up on eBay, he could never win the auctions because he was always losing out to older guys who had more disposable income. And so when he got admitted to the Royal Academy of Music, he was tipped off by one of his mentors who said, you've got to get yourself over to this museum by hook or by crook. Just get in there. Uh, You know, your knees will go wobbly when you see what birds are in there. And so he first went posing as a student photographer there to take pictures of the birds of paradise. um, And the museum granted him access. Uh, but at the same time that he was taking the pictures, he was also snapping shots of the photos and of the hallways and of the location of each cabinet and of the entry and exit points because he was building a visual map uh, of, of the museum that he would then spend eight months planning uh, his heist. And so his motives were, I, I think, twofold at heart. One, he he recognized the extraordinary value and so he was money was was really at the heart of this uh, he told me he he knew that these would hold their value throughout his entire life they were kind of like a lifelong insurance policy was what he said but at the same time this was an art form and he was a master practitioner of it and this was you know imagine a you know monet who Can paint anything, but he just—he's longing for a particular type of blue paint or green paint that only a few people on the planet have access to. That's sort of the other half of this equation: is that he understood the creative potential that having these specimens unlocked. And so, you know, he wanted to sell a bunch of them, but he also wanted to keep a lot for his own his own um, hobby.
0: I want to read just a little passage. This is from uh, chapter twenty-two. Um, you're getting ready to interview Edwin Rist. He has agreed to this. You're pretty sure you only get one shot here, and you didn't know—is he going to give you thirty minutes or you know longer? And you say you have one hundred and eighty or something questions. It boils down to you know two important ones. But um, many versions of Edwin Rist had appeared throughout the investigation, thrum through my mind. Edwin Rist committed the natural history crime of the century. Edwin Rist was a genius, masterminding a heist that netted him hundreds of thousands of dollars. Edwin Rist was a virtuosic flautist. Edwin Rist just just did something dumb like a lot of teenagers. Edwin Rist had some kind of disorder, maybe Asperger's. Edwin Rist was desperate for money to provide for his needy family. Edwin Rist was the future fly tying. He was a black mark on the community of fly tires. He was impulsive. Edwin Rist was the best anyone had ever seen. Edwin Rist was a narcissist. Edwin Rist was a felon. Edwin Rist didn't work alone. Uh, you know, these all all come together. Uh, I guess I want to ask the question, what, what do you come away, having met Edwin Rist and having researched him? And I want to focus it on this central uh, question. He himself says, I'm not a thief. Don't call me a thief.
1: Yeah, this was a really remarkable moment towards the tail end of a very long interview, which, as you said, I didn't know, and I don't think he knew either um, how long it would last. I mean, he told me at the beginning that it it might only last 15 minutes, depending on the line of questioning. Um, I think it was three or four hours before we even got to the heist part of the story. It was just, I just wanted to learn about his background and what brought him up until that point. But towards the end of the interview, after we had gone through some pretty tough uh parts, I tried to lighten the mood and I I said, Hey, how has this, you know, affected your your personal life? You know, if you go on a date, do you, you tell the person, hey, just so you know, if you Google me you'll see that that I'm a feather thief and I saw his brow kind of furrow at the word thief. And so I said to him, like, oh, sorry, is that too loaded of a term? Or, I mean, is there something wrong with that? And and as you said, he, and I think I have the full passage in the book, but he said something to the effect of uh, he's not a thief in the way that he views a thief. And he defined a thief to me as somebody who's waiting down by the riverbanks in a park Waiting to pick your pocket, and then he's back the next day looking for a new victim. Um, and he said, "You know, you can leave your wallet with me. I'm not going to steal it, and so so I'm I'm not a thief. Um, and so you know, I don't. I leave it to the reader to to do what they want with that with that kind of rationalization. But it was a it was a kind of striking. To hear because I mean, he, you know, even said he's like, granted, it is a word that applies to me, burglar applies to me, and I also don't like using that word. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, I did not see somebody who was uh, stricken with remorse over over what he had done.
0: I want to treat this uh, question of Asperger's. This was a diagnosis. A psychologist right who uh, officially uh, gave him the diagnosis of instrumental I believe in in getting him a light sentence um suspended yes, that's sentence. Right. and this you can't make this stuff up this uh, this particular psychologist or psychiatrist is a cousin to Sasha Baron Cohen
1: of yes, Borat that's fame. right this is Bo- Borat's cousin Yeah um, yeah and so you know I always I, this was one of the trickiest passages of the book to write because I I want people to understand that, you know, I'm not skeptical about um, Asperger's or what eventually what's now become known as autism spectrum disorder. I think I have people in my extended family who have it. Um, I don't, you know, I think Americans often in their pursuit of justice, want to throw everyone in prison, and the Brits, uh, in this case, felt that somebody with this diagnosis uh, shouldn't be going to prison. In this particular case, though, um, uh, I mean, uh, this diagnosis is the reason why justice was not served. He, He was basically, the judge understood that even if he sentenced Edwin to to prison that he would be released on appeal about six hours into my interview with him I said you know I don't want to sound like a jerk and I'm I'm obviously not a clinical psychologist so with those very with that big disclaimer in place like you don't seem like you have Asperger's to me you're you're looking me directly in the eye you're reading very subtle subcontext in my questions he would see a line of attack coming in a, in 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 my questioning and and headed off well in advance in the middle of giving me an answer if i didn't keep a good poker face if he saw that i was unsatisfied with an answer he would start changing it up on the fly to to try to give me something more that i might like um I said, "Well, how do like what am I spo- how am I supposed to interpret that?" And he said, "Well, you know, I never had I'd never heard of Asperger's before this um and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, "You know, I don't I've never had a problem with eye contact before and I don't have it now, but in that moment I and this is a rough quote, but he said I became what I needed to become." And before my eyes, he he talked about how the other symptoms are repetitive motion and he said so before you know it you're rocking back and forth in your chair and avoiding eye contact and and in front of me he started sort of demonstrating uh how the diagnosis had been and so this this to me seemed like a, a something resembling an admission i i approached the psychologist and i I put an uncomfortable question to him, but I said, is it possible that someone could fake Asperger's if it, you know, if it was the only thing keeping them from out of prison? And after, um, after a couple email exchanges, he did admit that it could be faked, um, but that you would hope that the expertise of the clinician would be able to kind of smoke that out. Um, but in this case, um, it was about two hours or less of an assessment, uh, which produced a report, which had some very fundamental mistakes in it that was handed to the court. I was leaked a copy of that report, um, versus, you know, my five or six years chasing every twist and turn of this crime and, and spending quite a bit of time with the thief himself. Um, and so, you know, um, it's I guess just count me skeptical. Um but just I just wanted to be very clearly understood that um you know, where I come at this from is that I think people who actually have Asperger's ought to be offended that it might be used uh or exploited by people to get it to get away with things. And in many cases, People who are on the spectrum have a heightened sense of right and wrong. It's not like people who have Asperger's suddenly lose their moral compass. That's that's ridiculous. Um, but for a number of reasons that are that have to do with the British British case law and the British justice system, um, that was the the key that kept him out of out of any kind of meaningful punishment.
0: Let's take another brief break. When we come back, we'll have our last segment with Kirk Wallace-Johnson, author of The Feather Thief, Beauty Obsession, and the Natural History Heist of the Century. It's now out in uh, paperback. A decade after his death, Billy Joe
1: Johnson's family is still looking for answers.
0: Felt like they were hiding a lot of stuff from us that that wasn't adding up.
1: We want truth, we want justice. (laughs) And when I was going to the body, that's when the police stopped me.
0: We wouldn't treat it fairly no kind of way. On the next Reveal.
1: Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio is now streaming a variety of music and talk programs in Spanish from Radio Bilingue. You can hear it 24 hours a day at upr.org. Just click on Listen Live and then press the UPR Tres button. Puede escuchar una variedad de programas musicales y de charlas en español de radio bilingüe en UPR. Puede escucharlo a las 24 horas del día en UPR.org. Simplemente haga clic en Escuchar en Vivo y luego presione el botón UPR3.
0: Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center and on the left. That's me. Both sides of the aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2019. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Kirk Wallace-Johnson, author of The Feather Thief, Beauty, Obsession, and the Natural History Heist of the Century, uh, it's uh, won several awards. A bestseller now out in paperback. I have seven or eight minutes left in the conversation, Kirk Johnson. I want to return to this fascinating subculture. This, uh, I guess, what you've termed uh, the feather underground. Um, and and so this is a subset of a subset. You, you've got fly tires, but but the kind of the usual fly tires that most of us would run into actually go out and fish with these, right? Um,
1: That's right. The one the ones who are normally who are doing this uh to fish with they're usually using them uh the they're tying trout flies, which are intimately connected with with nature that they're they you're meant to match the hatch when you go out fishing to look for to to throw a fly to these fish that most closely resembles the insects that are hatching at that moment um there is uh, as you said, a, a subculture or even a subset of a subset of these guys who are tying these Victorian classic salmon flies, they're called. There are, I mean, of course, there are are many men that tie these classic flies that didn't know Edwin, that didn't buy this stuff from him, um, and that are fine with just tying these pretty-looking things but using dyed feathers from you know, legally obtained game birds. So the guide that I hired in New Mexico, for example, he doesn't use uh, the rare stuff or the the illegal stuff. And, And most of the guys who are in that camp are actually fishermen because they understand that this is all just kind of artificial, that there's... I've talked to salmon anglers who have caught salmon with dog fur on a hook. I mean, there's no You know, uh, there's no reason that a a salmon in Scotland should have a biological attraction to a bird of paradise feather from the highlands of New Guinea. Those two creatures are never going to get near each other. Um, And so it tends to be the ones who actually know how to fish and go out and do this stuff, just tie normal flies using dyed feathers. But there is this subculture of of guys, most of them don't fish. Edwin, I think to this day, I'm not sure, but I don't think he's ever gone fishing in his life. Um, This is purely an aesthetic uh, pursuit and it's, it's ultimately, um, you know, bragging rights and status that you get. I mean, a single one of these flies can call for $2,000 worth of feathers. So, I mean, you have to be pretty, uh, you know, You'd have to be a real dummy to to cast that thing into the water.
0: Uh, do you think a book like yours, a publicity of this type, can help curb illegal trade? There's the illegal side of this, right? The legal side, but the illegal side of, of, of this uh, subculture?
1: Actually, I hope so. But, you know, I guess I come from a more um, constrained worldview where um, I think what the book has done is to, to fire a flare and to, to show a whole lot of others that there is this black market going on and that this um, you know frankly cult-like obsession with tying these things has now led to many museum heists um, but the old, the only thing that will truly change this I think is is if law enforcement, like the Fish and Wildlife Service, were to actually start prioritizing this and to to make it a um, you know an ongoing investigation where they're you know using resources to curb the illegal feather trade, much of which actually happens in in broad daylight on eBay. Uh, I mean, you you can go onto eBay right now and run a search for resplendent quetzal, which is a cites protected bird. It's a hundred percent illegal to buy and sell. Uh, but eBay doesn't mind. But the the ultimate way and the only way that I think this is truly going to change is whether is when if and when people who are in this community themselves start pushing for reform. Um it can't really come from I mean as much as I sometimes feel like an insider just because I spent so much of my the last several years chasing these guys, um, I'm still an outsider to them and I don't tie those things anyways. Uh, It has to come from within. These guys have to recognize that as beautiful as these things are, it has has produced some very um, hideous results, and some people's lives have, have come close to being ruined because of this. Someone needs to go through all of those 19th century books and basically revise them for the 21st century and to say, here's the same fly but you can use a chicken feather here instead of this Quetzal feather, and you can you can use a turkey feather here instead of that, you know, Katinga feather. Um, but there's a tiny group of guys who are trying to do that, but the reality is that if you've spent, I mean, some of these guys have spent, you know, well over $100,000 of their own money over the course of decades to accumulate these feathers, Um you're not going to be thrilled if suddenly you can get almost an identical looking feather for a nickel. Um, So there's a, there's a lot of uh, sort of investment bias that has gone into this already. That is keeping a lot of the most entrenched guys from recognizing just how warped this whole thing has become.
0: There's a lot of history here as well. We're, We're down to the end of the conversation. So we'll have to have people read the book. Um, but but the uh, feather fever, or the turn of the last century, which led to a slaughter of birds, and um, which in turn led to a conservation movement, um, and we'll we'll let people read about that. Just a, a minute left, Kirk Wallace Johnson. What do you you've you spent a lot of time with with this? What do you what's your what's your takeaway? Um, now paperback out of this book.
1: Yeah, you know. I think it often depends on my on my mood, but um you know you just mentioned the feather fever, and that's that's something where you know that triggered what historians think was the single largest extermination of wildlife on the planet for women's fashion in the Victorian era as crazy as it is to break into a museum and steal this stuff um, at the heart of this story is humans. Uh, placing an extreme value on beauty it's about the the kind of somewhat arbitrary financial price tags that we put on resor- natural resources and and the markets that then form to meet that that demand and how we how all of us in some ways are, are if there's a spectrum here of sort of complicity all of us lie somewhere on this spectrum where we you know we're not all climbing museum walls and breaking into things. But I think a lot of us have some moral blind spots about our own role in the planet and with the natural world. And, and so in some ways, I think the book is trying to to reach at that bigger question about our relationship with, with the planet and, and whether or not we'll be able to pull back from the brink before it's too late.
0: Good place to end the conversation. The book is The Feather Thief. It's out in paperback now. Kirk Wallace Johnson, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so
1: much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Please tune in on Sundays at noon for Utah Public Radio's new show, Eating the Past and Other Tasty Morsels. The show will air every Sunday right before the Splendid Table. And in each segment, we will explore food and its historical context, along with recipes, personal stories, and interviews about our relationship to food today. Your hosts will be Jean Sir, Jamie Sanders, and Tammy Proctor, all from the Department of History at Utah State University. My name is Sally Keller. I listen to Utah Public Radio through my smartphone app as I'm riding my exercise bike.